Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, December 8th, 2022. At the beginning of our Torah portion, Vayishlach, Yaakov is returning home to Israel after an absence of more than 20 years. And he is going to meet his brother Esav. Yaakov sends messengers ahead to tell Esav that he's coming. And of course, that he's coming in peace. However, when the messengers come back, Yaakov is very frightened. Yaakov is exceedingly frightened and distressed because what he heard from the messengers is that Esav is coming towards him with an army of 400 soldiers. And remember, the last time they had seen each other more than 20 years ago, Esav said he was going to kill Yaakov. And now here he is, more than 20 years have passed, and he's coming towards him with an army of 400 soldiers. So Yaakov is very, very frightened. Makes sense. But our rabbis always look for a deeper spiritual meaning to whatever happens in the Torah. And our rabbis ask the following question. Why should Yaakov be afraid? After all, God had promised that he would protect him. Remember the beginning of last week's Torah portion. When Yaakov leaves home 20 years earlier, God appeared to him in the dream of the ladder. And God said to him, I will protect you and I will bring you home and I will take care of you. So why should Yaakov be afraid of meeting Esau when God had promised to protect him? Our rabbis tell us a very curious answer, an answer that's that's difficult to understand on the surface. Our rabbis say that Yaakov was afraid because he was, maybe he lacked a certain merit that Esau had. Because remember, during the previous 20 years, Yaakov had not lived in Israel. He had been outside of Israel with Lavan, his father-in-law, raising his family, increasing his sheep. But he did not have the merit of living in Israel during those 20 years. Esau, meanwhile, had been in Israel the whole time. Esau had this merit of living in Israel. It's such a tremendous merit even to visit Israel. Our rabbis tell us even to walk Dalit Amos, four cubits, eight feet, to walk eight feet in the land of Israel is a mitzvah. To live there over a period of years is a tremendous merit for a person. Esau had this merit. Yaakov did not have it. And so Yaakov was afraid. Okay, so Yaakov was afraid. But hold on a minute. Yaakov is righteous in so many ways. He has so many merits on his side. Esav, our rabbis tell us, was so wicked. He was so evil. 
What could that one little merit have done to change the scales that Yaakov should be worried? Maybe Esav has more merits than he does because of this one mitzvah. How is that possible? Rav Shachter gives us the following answer. And it's something that every one of us needs to synthesize into our lives. Rav Shachter explains that every individual mitzvah that a person performs is so precious. In God's eyes, a mitzvah is so cherished, it's so valued. And the, when a person does a mitzvah, it's not diminished by any other things that a person does. A person could live a life with filled with negative actions and evil behavior. Yes, that's terrible. But if there is a mitzvah, a single mitzvah, the mitzvah is not tarnished by what happens before or after. It stands on its own. Esau had this merit, this mitzvah of living in Israel over the last 20 years, and Yaakov did not have that, notwithstanding all of the other actions, all of the righteousness of Yaakov, and all of the wickedness of Esau, that doesn't take away from the fact that Esau had this tremendous merit that Yaakov did not have. And therefore, Yaakov was afraid that maybe he would no longer deserve, earn, be entitled to God's protection. A person, no matter how religious or non-religious they consider themselves, no matter how pious or non-pious they consider themselves, no matter how spiritual or secular they consider themselves, a person should never make the mistake of thinking that it's all or nothing. No, that's not true. Every action stands on its own. Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav actually uses this understanding in a wider sense to explain an approach to life. The Torah tells us Yaakov was very frightened. And he decided on a strategy. He decides because he's afraid of what Esav is going to do. He's going to divide his camp in half. The people, the animals, the possessions, he's going to divide it into. And he says to himself, if God forbid Esav should attack one of the camps, the other camp will be able to escape. If you divide, if everything is in one location and God forbid that location is attacked, then everything is lost. But if the camp is divided into two, an attack happens on one, the other can escape. Listen carefully to Rav Nachman of Bratzlav. When a person sees that it's difficult to find a complete solution to a problem, it makes sense to settle for a partial solution. 
in order for there to be a second camp that will remain. It won't be the whole thing. Part will be lost, but at least some will be retained. A person should say to themselves, I am strong. I will not retreat completely from what God wants. I will never despair. And I'll continue to keep watch and I'll grab whatever I can. And if it's only half, okay, so I have half. Half is better than nothing. And Rav Nachman explains that this is a personal lesson for every single one of us. Rav Nachman is saying to you and he's saying to me, listen, you think that you're not a tzaddik, you're not a righteous person like Yaakov? I think I'm not a righteous person like Yaakov. Rav Nachman of says, relax, don't worry. Even Yaakov understood that sometimes you have to settle for a partial victory. You have to take hold of even a partial mitzvah, even a partial success. It's worth it because of the value of every individual mitzvah, even every individual part of each mitzvah. Even if you don't have the whole thing, even if you don't succeed completely, take whatever part you can and grab it and value it. Just over a week from now, we begin the holiday of Hanukkah. We all know the story. There was a period of time where the Besamigdash, the Holy Temple, was defiled and used for idolatry. And then the Maccabees came into the courtyard of the Besamigdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And what did they find when they got there? It was chaos. It was, everything was ruined. Everything was destroyed. Everything was broken. And they found one small jar of oil. The amount of oil that they found was only enough to last for one day. And it would take another week to produce more oil. So what's the logical thing to do? If I would come to that situation and I see the whole thing is messed up. And I could light the menorah. I could restart the base amigdash for one day. And then it's going to have to go dark for a week. That doesn't make sense. To my mind, what makes sense is, listen, it's been out of use for two and a half years. Let's clean it up. Let's get the oil that we need. Let's get the supplies. And once we're ready, and once everything is in place, it's only another week. Wait another week, and then you'll be ready. But that's not what they did. Because they understood this lesson that Yaakov is teaching us. That to light the menorah for one night is also a mitzvah. And it's not nothing. Yes, according to the natural laws, it should have been there was only enough for one night. And after that, they'd have to go back dark again for another week. Yes. But to light the menorah once 
is also a mitzvah. And if you have the opportunity to light the menorah one time, if you have the opportunity to bring the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, back into service for one day, that's worth it. Grab it. Don't wait until everything is in place and you're going to be able to keep it going forever. If you can do it for one day, grab one day. And the response to that attitude of wanting to grab even a single action that was positive in God's eyes, that was cherished in God's eyes, God responds with a miracle. God responds with a miracle. And it's not just one day. That small amount of oil lasted eight days until there was plenty more oil. In other words, God valued this attitude that sees that even a single action don't worry about what's been going on the last two and a half years. Don't worry about how is there going to be oil in the next eight days. You can do a mitzvah now. Do it now. I fear that there are many Jews, many Jews who are observant, who care about Judaism, who observe mitzvahs. But they sometimes, we sometimes think about how many mitzvahs there are. I've got to do this, and then I've got to do this, and I can't do this, and I can't do this. There's so many mitzvahs, so many requirements. It's kind of a burden. Couldn't it just be a little easier? 613, what would have been so bad if it would be, I don't know, 63 instead of 600? Our rabbis tell us, the famous line in Pirkei Avos, Rabbi Hananiah ben Akashi Omer. Rabbi Hananiah, the son of Akashi, teaches, God gave us so many mitzvahs. You know why? Not to burden us. To give us opportunities for merit. To give us opportunities to ennoble our lives. Every mitzvah is opportunity. And even if you can grab one, it is so valuable in God's eyes. Doesn't matter what happened before and it doesn't matter what happens after. That single mitzvah remains. One of the main messages of Hanukkah derives from Yaakov's strategy in our Torah portion. Grab a hold of any mitzvah that you can even one, even part of one, even if you can only grab a hold and re retain half, it's worth it. It's valuable. It has meaning. It's a whole lot more than nothing. So Yaakov begins this strategy of dividing his camp in two. There is a river, Nachal Yavor, and he decides he's going to take half the people and half the possessions and take it to the other side of the river.
Vayakam Balailahu Vayikakashte Nashav, Beshte Shavchosav, Yaakov, this is the middle of the night, because tomorrow morning he's going to be meeting Asaph. He doesn't know whether Asaph is going to come as friend or foe, as brother or enemy. So in the middle of the night, he takes half of his camp by Yavor Es Mavar Yabok. And he crosses the Yabok River. And Yaakov was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn, all night long. It's a very cryptic passage. It's a very mysterious passage. First of all, this Mavor Yabok crossing the Yabok, this word Jabberwocky actually comes from here. There's all kinds of mystical understandings crossing to the other side between life and death. It's a very complicated, mystical, unclear passage. A lot of esoteric discussion about what's going on with this river and crossing the river and why is Yaakov alone and who is he wrestling with? Is it a man? Is it an angel? Somehow represents Esau. What's going on? But let's try to look at it simply for a moment. Yaakov is putting into practice the strategy of dividing his camp into two. So you have everything in one place. The people and the possessions are in one place. You want to divide in two. So, and there's a river. So you take half, you put it on a boat, and you cross the river. Now your camp is divided into two. Seems very simple. So how is it possible? How did Yaakov come to be alone on one side of the river by himself? How did that happen? So our rabbis give us a curious answer. Yaakov had moved half of his camp to the other side, but he went back. He forgot something. He went back. He went back because he forgot pachim ketanim. Pachim ketanim means small pottery jugs, meaning insignificant items, some little meaningless, insignificant objects, which is very, very strange because we know from the end of last week's Torah portion that Yaakov was an extremely wealthy man. Remember how Yaakov was so assiduous in increasing his flocks and his wealth? And remember, we studied this before, how Yaakov's action, how hard he was working day and night, cold and hot. And we, we learned how Yaakov's actions are the model for proper business practices and employee relations of how to work for someone as hard as you can. And he was a wealthy man. Why go back? Because you left a few pottery jugs that are worth nothing? And now because you went back, you're in some kind of danger and there's wrestling all night long? Why go back for something insignificant? Liyakar, 
one of the classic commentators to the Torah gives an amazing answer. Kliyakar says, there is holiness in something that is earned honestly. If you work honestly and you earn and you have possessions that you have purchased with money that was earned ethically and honestly, there is holiness to those objects. They were inexpensive, but they were of great value to Yaakov because he had earned them honestly. And that's why he went back for them. That's how it came that he was left alone on one side of the river by himself. There's a mitzvah of Pigyon Haben. A baby is born and it's a baby boy, the firstborn to its mother. There's a mitzvah of Pigyon Haben, redemption of the firstborn. And the way that that happens is there's a ceremony when the baby is about 30 days old, that there's a ceremony with a Kohen, and the father of the baby takes five silver coins. The value is a little bit more than $100. And the father redeems his son to the Kohen by giving these coins to the Kohen. Okay, it's a ceremony called Piyin Aben. Maybe you've been to one. If not, I hope you had the chance to attend. It's a very interesting, curious, and important ceremony. All right, let's just look at the logistics. The Kohen just received five silver coins. What does he do with them? Sometimes, after the ceremony is over, the Kohen will give the coins back to the father. That's not the right thing to do. Sometimes the Kohen will take that money, that value, and he'll donate it to tzedakah, to charity. He earned it through a mitzvah. He'll do another mitzvah with it. He'll give it to charity. It's very nice. It's not required, but it's very nice. Rabbi Avraham Cook, the first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, was a Kohen. And of course, he was many times honored to be the Kohen at Epigen Haben, redemption of a firstborn. And Rabbi Cook had the practice that whenever he received those five silver coins, he would always use the money for his own personal living expenses. He would pay his bills. Someone said to him, I mean, of course, there's nothing wrong with it. It belongs to you. It's given to you. It belongs to you. You can do whatever you want. But I mean, using it for your own personal benefit, why don't you give it to tzedakah? Why don't you use it for some cause? And Rabbi Cook said, no money that I ever earn in my life will be as honestly earned as these five coins because it's the Torah itself that says that I should receive these coins. And so it is an honor for me to use these coins for my personal expenses because no other funds will be as honestly earned. We should have pride in objects that we have 
acquired with honesty. It should mean something to us when we engage in ethical practices. The Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Kagan of Radin, He once said to his son, it was a weekday. He said, I want you to come with me on an errand. But before we go on the errand, both of us are going to put on Shabbos clothes. Chavaz Chaim was a very poor man. He didn't wear Shabbos clothes during the week. It was very unusual. He put on his Shabbos clothes. He told his son, put on your Shabbos clothes and come with me. They sat out on a walk. They went to someone's house. The Chavetz Chaim knocked on the door. A man answered the door and the Chavetz Chaim said, I'm here to repay the loan that you lent me. I owe it to you. Today it's due. And I'm today fulfilling the mitzvah of repaying this loan on time. And to be able to do that in an ethical and honest manner was so important. The Chavetz Chaim wanted his son to witness and he wanted to see how precious it was that he was getting dressed up to treat it as an important occasion that he was paying a debt properly and on time. But let's go a little deeper. Because the Talmud has a more elaborate version of this statement. Vayivasar Yaakov Levado, Yaakov was alone in the middle of the night. Amr Abelazar, Rabbi Elazar teaches, Shinishtayra Pachim Ktanim. He was alone because he went back for the small jugs, the jars, the little utensils that he forgot on the other side. Mikan, from here we learn a lesson. Mikan litzadikim shechaviv aleya mamonim yoser megufam. From here we learn that for righteous people, for ethical people, for honest people, their money is more valuable to them than their lives. That's what the words say. Mikan litzadikim shechaviv aleya mamonim yoser megufam. From here we learn that for righteous people, their money is more dear to them than their lives. What does that mean? I mean, that goes against everything we know about Jewish values and Jewish law. Person's not allowed to put themselves in danger in order to save themselves some money or even to find, to, to, to get back some money. What does this Talmud mean? It cannot possibly mean that Yaakov was willing to put himself in danger and risk his life by being alone, where he'd be wrestling with this, whatever it was, this man, this angel all night, because he left some insignificant, inexpensive utensils. It's just not possible. And furthermore, listen to this statement of the rabbis. God said to Yaakov, Atomasarta Nashukha Apach Katan Bishvili. 
you, Yaakov, were willing to risk your life in order to retrieve a small jar? I'm going to repay your, your mitzvah to your descendants where I will provide a pach katan, a small jar, livnei chashmonoi, to the children of the chashmonoyim, Yehuda Maccabee and his family, shenasa neisayide pach katan, where a miracle will take place through a small jar. What's the connection of Hanukkah to Yaakov going back for the small jar? What's the connection? Yaakov was a wealthy man. He did not need those small utensils. He did not need a small jar. He would not have gone back had he known that he was actually going to place himself at risk and danger, obviously. But he was willing to expend energy and inconvenience though he could clearly afford to leave the utensils where they were. But as the Kliyakar explains, or Rav Shamshofol Hirsch explains, Yaakov realized that everything he had was a gift from God. And even if it was inexpensive, it was still something that God had given him. And that means that wasting something is wrong, not just because you can't afford to waste it. And wasting something is wrong, not just because somebody else could use it. Wasting something is wrong because if you have something, it means that God gave it to you. And to waste it is to lack appreciation for a gift that God has given you. Imagine you receive a gift from someone you love and who loves you. It's going to be important to you. Even if the object itself is insignificant because of who gave it to you. There are a number of sources that seem to indicate that there was a gradual transformation in our appreciation of what Hanukkah was all about. At the time that it happened, it's hard to believe that finding the oil and the miracle that a small amount of oil lasted instead of one day, it lasted eight days. It's hard to believe that that was actually so important. Because after all, huh, number one, they just had to wait a week and they would have had all the oil they needed. That's number one. And number two, there's a little secret. They didn't need the small jar of oil. The rule in the Talmud is if there's no oil with the seal of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, you can use any oil. You can go to Costco and buy olive oil. It's the same thing. It's hard to believe that that miracle was really the most important thing. Rather, 
it seems from a number of the sources that contemporaneously, it was the military victory that was the primary miracle, that a small band of one family could start this guerrilla warfare and be able to overcome the gigantic, powerful Assyrian Greek army and be able to reclaim the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. That was a miracle, the military miracle. If anything, the miracle of the oil might have been a signifier. It might have been a symbol to indicate that God was pleased with the action, the actions and the activities and the successes of Yudah Maccabee and his family. But then, some 300 years later, when the Talmud describes Hanukkah, for the first time, we see the primary discussion is about the small jar of oil and the miracle of lasting not one day, but eight days. And today, our main celebration of Hanukkah, lighting the menorah, relates exclusively to that appreciation. There is this historical shift in how we evaluate the holiday. A shift from the military victory, which was primary at the time that it happened, to our later appreciation of it, which has transformed into the miracle of the oil. And it's not an accident. Because the message of our rabbis the message that our rabbis want to emphasize is to appreciate finding a small, insignificant object and the message that it comes from God. It's valuable. It's not insignificant if it's a message from God, if it's a gift from God. It was consequential because it was coming from God. When we light the menorah and Hanukkah, we remind ourselves of this task to look at what we have, everything in our lives, to look at what we have as a gift from God. Whatever we have, large or small, significant or insignificant. And in doing so, we repeat in our day, Yaakov's original lesson in going back for the small jars of oil. Now, it's interesting that this shift from emphasis on the military miracle to the miracle of the oil seems to actually parallel a shift in the traditional foods associated with Hanukkah. Because in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Code of Jewish Law itself, the Shulchan Aruch says that there is a traditional food to eat on Hanukkah. Dairy. Eating dairy on Hanukkah is the traditional food. And that's the only thing that's mentioned. <coughs> and the reason for eating dairy has to do with the story of Olifarnas and Yehudas having to do with the military victory. Our present practice, where many of us, to celebrate Hanukkah, will have potato latkes or sufganiyot or donuts, something fried in oil, of course, is a reminder of the miracle of the oil. So even in the foods 
there is a transformation from the emphasis on the miracle of the military victory to the emphasis on the miracle of the oil. So as we enjoy the, whichever foods we have on Hanukkah, we should reflect on how this aspect has come to the fore and the lesson that it teaches that we learn originally from Yaakov. Okay, so Yaakov and Esav reunite. It works out peacefully. But they decide they're going to part ways, friendly, but they're going to part ways. Esav goes his way. The Yaakov Nasa Sukosa. And Yaakov goes to a place in Israel called Sukos. By even low bias, he builds for himself a house. And for his flocks, he builds a sukkah, a sukkah, a temporary dwelling. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkos, just like the holiday, which is not going to come into being for several centuries. Now, that's a very strange verse, and there are two problems with that verse. The first is that Yaakov called the name of the place Sukkos after he got there, right? Because he got to this place, and he built these Sukkos, and he called the name of the place Sukkos, but the verse first says he went to Sukkos, so apparently it somehow already had the name Sukkos before he did the action after which he named it Sukkos. It seems out of order. Okay, maybe you'll say that's just the biblical way of writing that it was called Sukkos because later he was going to build these, these, these uh, enclosures, Sukkos, for his animals and he was going to call it Sukkos. Okay, it calls it out of order, out of chronological order. Maybe, but it's a little strange. But the other question is much more difficult. You move to a town, you build yourself a house, you build a structure for your animals called a sukkah, and you call the name of the city Sukkos. Why in the world would you call the name of the city the name of the what you built for your animals? Why wouldn't you name it for what you built for the people? There's a safer called Milchemes Yehuda who gives a fascinating answer. Sukkos is not just a place on a map. Sukkos is a state of mind. Remember where we are in Yaakov's life. Yaakov grew up in his parents' home. At a certain point, he had to run away. And he lived with Lavan, raised his family. And now he's coming back to Israel and he's now entering a new period of his life. The previous 20 years he had spent working, remember, day and night, hot and cold, in order to increase his flocks. And now he moves back to Israel. And Yaakov says to himself, You know what? I've lived a lifetime 
devoted to material pursuits, to increasing my wealth. There's a benefit to that. There's a value to that. But that can't be all there is to life. I don't want to live the rest of my life with that as my primary goal. I want to live a life now, a life of a sukkah. What is the sukkah? Our rabbis discuss this in the context of the holiday of sukkahs. My sukkah. What is a sukkah? One opinion is diras aroi. It's a temporary dwelling. It refers to the temporary dwellings that the Jewish people lived in while they traveled through the desert. In other words, it's a kind of a dwelling that is not an end for its own sake. It's a means for a journey. It's the way that you're going to be able to travel from here to there. The second opinion is that the sukkah was hashra sashchina, being in contact with God's presence, being enveloped by God's cloud of glory. In this context, both of those meanings are true. Yaakov decided at this stage of my life, I want to live a life where I'm surrounded by Sukkos. It is a life where I'm beginning to see the acquisition of wealth not as an end in and of itself. A means necessary, but there's a higher end to live a life connected to God. To live a life where I make a statement to my family, to my children. These are my values. The wealth that I have is not important. It's temporary. It's there to get me through the journey. The goal of the journey is to do what is right and moral, what brings me closer to God. The truth is some people do this after a crisis. Some people have a health scare, God forbid. Some people lose their job or encounter financial insecurity, God forbid. Some people going through COVID, reevaluate my life. Is this really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? Is there something else perhaps? Is there some other direction I should be taking? But every one of us needs to learn from Yaakov first that from time to time we have to re-examine our lives. We have to question our priorities. Is this what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? What do I want my values to be? What do I want my children to learn? about what's important to me, what is central and what is peripheral. What can I do without and what am I really living for? And then once I've figured that out, I have to be able to make the changes necessary to bring that into happening. Let me share with you one last insight, please. This is an insight from Rabbi Avraham Cook. I mentioned him before, first Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel. And it explains a 
subtle, obscure discrepancy in our Torah portion. It addresses a thorny theological problem and it expresses the essential character of Rabbi Cook. His life as a Jew and his life as a leader. Near the end of our Torah portion, after Yaakov meets Esau, after the wrestling, after the other encounters, after the terrible events that happen with his daughter Dina, after all that happens, the Nakuma Vanala Beiskale, Yaakov and his family move back to this place called Beiskale. The Osi and I will build there an altar in worship of God who answered me in my day of distress. And this God who has been with me through all this journey of many, many years that I've been traveling, I'm going to build an altar. And so Yaakov comes back to Beiskel. And he builds there an altar. He calls this place the, the place of God. Because that is the place that God appeared to him when he ran away from his brother Esau. Remember back to last week's Torah portion. Yaakov is running away because his brother Esau has said that he's going to kill him. So Yaakov runs away and he comes to a place. It happens to be base kale and he falls asleep and he has a dream. This magnificent dream of a ladder resting on earth, reaching up to heaven, angels ascending and descending. And at the top is God. And God makes this promise to him. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. You're leaving Israel now, but I'm going to protect you and I'm going to bring you back. And Yaakov awakes from his sleep. When he gets up in the morning, he takes the stone that he had rested his head on, and he erects the stone as a matseva, a monument. And he calls the name of this place Beiskale. And Yaakov promised an oath at that time. And he said to God, if you will be with me, God, and you will protect me along the journey that I'm going on. You'll give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. And if you will return me safely to my father's home, this stone that I've erected as a monument, I will offer an offering to serve you in this place. In our Torah portion, this is finally fulfilled more than 20 years later. 
Yaakov finally returns to Beiskel and he keeps his pledge to serve God in this place. But there's a slight, subtle discrepancy. Because the first time Yaakov is in this place, Beiskel, he serves God by erecting a matseva. Now, a matseva means a monument. It is a single stone. And the way that it used to be practiced, it would be placed as a way of serving God. Now, please don't confuse this with our understanding of matseva, which is a marker, a monument for a grave. God forbid someone passes away. We have a matseva. That's not what we're discussing. But it's the same thing. It's one stone that was erected as a way of serving God. In our Torah portion, when Yaakov comes back to base Kale, he does not erect a matseva, he erects a mizbeach, an altar. What's the difference between a monument and an altar? The difference is a monument is one single stone. An altar is built of many smaller stones that are built together to create the altar. And this subtle difference indicates a shift in paradigm in how God was served from one generation to the next. Each of the three patriarchs, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, had their own individual unique way of serving God. Avram served God with kindness and hospitality. Yitzchak served God with awe and submission. Yaakov served God with studying Torah. And in the generation of each of them, that was the path. And it was unique. And it changed from one to the other because they were different personalities. But now in our Torah portion, Yaakov returns 22 years later. And now he has 12 sons. And these 12 sons will form the 12 tribes of Israel. And for the first time, there is no longer a single path to serving God. This is the beginning of a new era of multiple paths of serving God. Each one of Yaakov's son had their own unique way of approaching God. This is the beginning of Klal Yisrael, of the community of the Jewish people, because the Jewish nation requires a variety of talents. The altar that Yaakov built now was built of many stones indicating this new paradigm in how to serve God. There's no longer a single uniform way to serve God. No longer a single stone, matseva, but rather a mosaic of individual stones, individual approaches, all with one common desire to serve God. But with this new way of serving God, a problem arises. And that problem is that each person believes that their path is better than the others. How can you have a multiplicity of paths towards God 
without one denigrating the other. And in fact, this is the goal that occupies the rest of Yaakov's life. How to be able to unify his family. And tragically, what we're going to see next is the utter failure of that enterprise with the enmity between Yosef and his brothers. It doesn't work at first. The stones are all jealous of each other. They're all at war with each other. Until finally, by the end of the book of Bereshus, we find that Yaakov's family is described as Shivim Nefesh, 70 soul, singular. Finally, there is the understanding among Yaakov's family that it's only the externals that are different. Only the externals separate us. But what is essential, that we're all serving one God? There are many paths. But together they create an altar. Many stones joined together. We don't serve God today with an altar. But it remains our model of how to serve God. Multiple paths, multiple approaches, multiple customs, multiple languages. There is the philosophical approach and the intellectual approach and the emotional approach and the analytic approach and the simple approach and the mystical approach. There are Ashkenazim and Sephardim and Hasidim and every other traditional group of Jews. We are all stones separated by externals but all joined together to serve God as one altar, one edifice. Rav Cook was the leader most known for seeing the beauty and holiness in every Jew, every different kind of Jew, every different group of Jews. And Rav Cook devoted his life through his teaching and his example of placing each stone together to create a magnificent mosaic of Jews serving God in all sorts of ways, but united in creating one altar. Rav Cook is a model for us of reinvigorating this paradigm for our era that was initiated by Yaakov in our Torah portion and that we need to incorporate into our lives to see the beautiful mosaic of the Jewish people together as stones that together create one altar to serve God. My friends, I want to wish you a great night and a beautiful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.